Howdy, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Kalecki. And I'm Clint Jones. And today we're talking about Red Dead Redemption 2, y'all. Uh, developed and published by Rockstar Games, uh, Red Dead Redemption 2 was released for PS4, Xbox One back in October of 2018 and later released for Windows and the Stadia in November of 2019. And um, obviously, this is a very story-heavy game, and we will be talking spoilers, so heads up if you are sensitive to that. How do you follow up on one of the most influential and well-regarded open-world games of all time? Well, uh, the Zelda series is seeking to answer that same question very uh, recently, (laughs) (laughs) but um, back in 2018, Rockstar Games was asking themselves the same thing when they released Red Dead Redemption 2. And I think it has stood the test of time. Uh, having replayed this one again recently, I am uh, still astounded by it. It is an incredible game, technically, narratively, all the above. Uh, glad to have played it again now that Josh has finally uh, visited it. Uh, <laughs> what do y'all think, uh, Josh, being a first-timer? What are your thoughts? Uh, it's a very impressive game, for sure. I don't want to spoil too many things in the cast, but... Um, it's very pretty today, even after, what has it been, uh, five, six years since it came out? Five years, yeah. That's when I played it. I played it, I think, right when it came out. And Brian, to your point, I think how they followed up to the original game was to change the formula entirely and do things massively differently than they did the first time. For sure. This is a huge uh, evolution to what was going on in Red Dead Redemption 1 in most ways. Um, you know, I think there's a, a lot of through line between the two. Obviously, this is a prequel to um, Red Dead Redemption 1, uh, which released back in 2010. So, uh, yeah, we're talking a solid eight years after that initial outing, and it is a prequel. So we're we're talking about um, a situation where we, we know the outcome of this story going into it, which I think is one of the most interesting things about it. And one of the things that makes it really fun not only to play through uh, having played Red, Red Dead Redemption, but also having played through, again, having played Red Dead Redemption 2, I think there's so much that you notice this in this game a second time through, you know? I think something made it beautiful knowing that the entire cast was doomed before it even started. I mean, this is a Western. Who survives Westerns? Nobody ever. <laughs> but uh, even knowing that, like, with some of the characters like John, like, you know what's going to happen with some of these guys. And even some of the characters that you're friends with in this game, you know are going to become villains in the next one. I don't know. It made it, I don't know, much more nuanced and interesting, I think. The plot of Red Dead 1 was John Marston hunting down some of his old friends from Dutch Vanderlyn's gang. And back in Red Dead 2, the prequel, you uh, don't play as John Marston at first, but you see him and his friends when they're just his friends, which is a really mm-hmm. interesting kind of um, flavor or subtext to how things are going. Yeah, it's really interesting to see like the name Javier Escuela pop up really early on, and he's just one of Dutch's dudes. Um, you know, like I, that, and Bill Williamson. You know, I, these names like immediately just like burned into my mind from all of the events of Red Dead One. And you know, I remember back playing this in 2018, being like, I know that guy. <laughs> yeah, I like that. When uh, I mean, there was a lot of story to Red Dead One, but they didn't overly go into backstory, which left a giant empty canvas for them to do pretty much anything they wanted with this game, which I really like. There was no like need for immense retconning or things like that to make this work. It just felt natural. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, despite the fact that we know where it's going to end up, we certainly didn't know how it was going to get there. But um, speaking of how things got there before we go too far into Red Dead 2, I think I want to talk a little bit about the 
development of this game and, and of Rockstar in general. Because like, obviously we all have a lot of exposure to Rockstar games, but this was probably, you know, their most recent magnum opus, you know, coming off GTA V. This game spent eight years in development. It has some ridiculous numbers attached to it, and they are corresponded with ridiculous ambitions for the game. You know, 300,000 animations in this game, 500,000 lines of dialogue. At one point, there were about 1,500 people working on this game with 900 different actors. Over the course of the entire project, over 2,000 people worked on this game. And it shows. All right, so you think of giant open-world games. Oh want to say they're their contemporaries but think like just previously you're looking at games like Skyrim or Oblivion right where they have three voice actors for the 900 characters (laughs) and it's clearly repeated over and over and over and you're like oh my god it's that guy again I don't think I felt that way at any time in Red Dead which is crazy like I, I, I never felt like there was repeats I was listening to a podcast where um two of the the hosts are part of the New York and Chicago improv scenes, respectively, and both of them mentioned that they knew people who worked on this game um, in their own respective cities. Wow! <laughs> just apparently, they were just hoovering up all of the acting and voice acting talent they could find. Um, and obviously, you know, this is, as you mentioned, Clint, an extremely impressive game from a technical perspective. Rockstar was just awash in money after Red or Grand Theft Auto V, and especially Grand Theft Auto V Online. Um, and yeah. their vice president of creativity, Dan Hauser, and also one of the main writers, was like, I really want to make something inspired by a Western. And, you know, after um, after a long period of um, having that desire, they created Red Dead Redemption. And it was, Red Dead Redemption, it's amazing that it came out as, as you know, amazing as it did back in the day, because uh, it was shortly after an acquisition, as I understand it. Basically, they... Um, acquired a studio, acquired that Red Dead IP from Red Dead Revolver and turned it into like a GTA style game. But this is, I think, more the actual vision for what they wanted their Western game to be. Perhaps. I mean, you're talking about like Red Dead Redemption was a quick turnaround after Red Dead Revolver, but Red Dead Revolver, like when they acquired that IP, that game was pretty much finished. Uh, You know, they had to crunch on it some more time. Um, But, like, Red Dead Redemption, I see that as how they wanted to do the whole Red Dead thing. Yeah, and I played the original Red Dead Revolver. It doesn't feel anything like it. I feel like that's just like a... They basically bought a name and, like, I don't know, maybe... They bought the studio and got the uh, almost finished game with it. I will say this. Like, we've all played the GTA games, and those games are very much open world like this tonally very different silly more bombastic things like that i feel like this centered down and really dug into a singular character and like dug into like the human aspects in like a more realistic fashion i don't know it came off very well they took the best parts of what a gta game could be and made it like a good narrative game yeah this game wasn't very um bombastic let's say i mean there were a few stranger side quests who were a little more fantastical let's say um but it in terms of the main drama, it was very, very much played straight. Yeah, like even looking in the opening hours, there's like very little in the way of combat. Like if you think of a GTA game, every mission is something crazy, some amount of combat going on. You got to kill somebody, do this or that. Most of the time you spend hanging around on your horse, talking to your friends, hanging out in the camp, learning something about somebody over here. Yeah, you might have to shoot a guy, but that's like few and far between. Yeah, that's a, a great point. This is definitely more grounded. And, you know, it, as you said, Josh, if the GTA games are more bombastic or hyper real, this is definitely more down to earth. And that fits the Western setting. I think it is, um, 
if they're going for creating a Western, having like a very down to earth, um, real salt of the earth storyline makes a lot of sense. And maybe let's set the stage as we're starting to talk about this already. You know, this is uh, obviously something we want to set some context for since we're going to have, I know we all want to talk about the world, the characters, the themes, the um, mechanics, everything, but let's let's talk about where we're actually doing all of this in. Um, Red Dead Redemption 2's story is set in a sort of representation of the United States circa 1899, so the turn of the 19th century, and it follows, as you mentioned up top, the Dutch Vanderlyn gang of outlaws, and specifically their heavy, their enforcer, Arthur Morgan, uh, Dutch's right-hand man, and he has to deal with uh, not only the trials and tribulations of this gang, inter-gang rivalries, inter-gang versus government rivalries, and all other adversaries that they uh, <laughs> basically uh, have to surmount to try and get themselves to follow Dutch's plan. I think most importantly about that timeline, too, is this is the turn of the century where I, I think uh, corporations are starting to take over. Like, the, the West is disappearing. These guys all want to live in the Wild West, and it's a world that's shrinking quickly and slowly squeezing them out. And they're feeling that pressure and trying to find a place in the world, sometimes violently. And that's kind of where they're left. They make a point in the game mentioning at some point where wherever the railroads go, the Pinkertons follow. Yeah, and the Pinkertons are definitely one of those sort of recurring antagonists throughout this game. Them and the government, I guess. <laughs> but um, there's definitely a through line of, as you mentioned, Clint, um, this gang slowly being pressed out of existence. You know, they Dutch keeps saying, we need to get west. We need to just keep getting far enough west. And um, uh, hilariously, the, the gang uh, never ends up heading west. They always continually get pushed east just through, through a series of unfortunate events. Uh, it's very interesting, and I think it, it definitely plays into sort of the larger story themes, but um, we'll talk about that when the time comes. Funny aside real quick, we were talking about the Pinkertons there. That sounds like some mythical old group that doesn't exist anymore. I just read an article like last week about how somebody accidentally got magic the gathering cards before they were supposed to get them and uh wizards of the coast sent the pinkertons after them to get the cards back and they forced their way into a man's home to get magic cards back this is real life guys the pinkertons are real life current dickheads like this is a real thing you're absolutely right clint um these are uh people that do in fact exist in real life and have existed <laughs> since the time of this um game setting you know the turn of the century and they were union busters like historically that was their job uh they were called mm -hmm. in to bust unions basically stooges for rich people to quell uprisings or labor disputes and uh you know, what you just described, Clint, absolutely fits with that. Hilariously, they also <laughs> sued um, Rockstar for their the use of the namesake in this game. Uh, not, of course, because it was incorrect or false or, you know, uh, de defamatory in any way, but because they wanted a piece of the action and this game made so fucking much money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, thinking back, uh, Brian, you mentioned this was a large map that gets covered, and it really is. I think um, over the course of the game, there are five different states that get represented um, in this Amberino with the mountains, uh, New Hanover, where you start off, West Elizabeth, um, uh, and then New Austin and Lemoyne as well. And then the island, of course, too. And there's even more than that. If you look at like the Red Dead online, like even um, 
Man, I, I could have sworn they were going to make Red Dead Redemption 1 all over again because they already had the map. Like, they had Mexico or whatever that was called rebuilt entirely in here as yeah, well. It's New, like, New Austin. That was uh, Amer- uh, New Austin New was Austin. north of the river. Yeah, they have south too. Like, they rebuilt all that and they never ended up doing anything with it outside of Red Dead Online. So they I'd did buy so that much twice in this map. If they redid oh, it. for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's a great point. Um, you know, an interesting thing about this map is, as Josh, you mentioned, it's super huge and generally speaking, pretty chock full of stuff. Um, I think, you know, maybe sands that lower area that is the Red Dead Redemption 1 territory. But that being said, as, as you mentioned, Clint, it wasn't really used in the main story and really opened up only after as a place to include some stuff for, for multiplayer. But overall, I think I really loved this game's world more so for its beauty, this is a game where you can crest a hill at any given time and see something so amazingly gorgeous that it kind of makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. It is just such an incredible looking game, and I think it renders nature in a way that almost nothing else ever has. Yeah, I feel like this game, like Breath of the Wild, will be one of those games you can play 20 years from now, and it will still look just as good. Although on the flip side of that, outside of the way it looks, the way it feels, I think, was what made the biggest difference for me. Zelda feels lonely in a different way that this game feels lonely. You spend a lot of time by yourself, but there's always something going on or things happening. Like, I never felt like it was an empty world. Like, there was some random guy passing by that would say hi or somebody needing something off on the side. And, and not necessarily grabbing for your attention, but you could go over there and dig into it. And if you wanted to, there'd be more to it. I I totally agree with you, Clint, that this is one of those things where, like, they are trying to create what people would call a living world. Yeah, I agree with that, too. Like, um, you're walking along and you find these stranger side quests, and they don't really give you any information about what the stranger side quests are going to be. Sometimes it's like, help, I'm being robbed, and you solve the robbery, and that's it. But other times it launches into this long mission sequence as well, so... Um, part of that is like you show up and you really never know what a stranger is going to bring to you. That I think helps out with the feeling of life. Even better than that is there's no quest markers. Like, so let's say this was Witcher three or whatever. There would be like a question mark above the dude. You'd go see the dude and then you'd realize there's more to this, but you know that going into it in this game, you walk up to a guy, he's just randomly talking. You can walk away and it's nothing, or you can stay, see what he says. And Oh my God, you realize like, this is the whole scripted quest that's going on over here. And you never would have known had you just not sat there and heard him out. Like, um, there's a whole bunch of examples of this, but I remember randomly finding a guy on the side of the road. He was hurt. I end up taking him to the doctor. He begs me to take him to the doctor. I take him. I leave him at the doctor and he says goodbye and thank you. And that's it. I hung out at the doctor's office for the next five minutes. And then all of a sudden they go into this whole thing where the doctor's like, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to take your arm off a whole thing where this guy traumatically has to lose his arm. There's like 10 minutes of dialogue about it. And had I not stayed, I never would have seen any of that. Like that was just all scripted, but not flagged. I like, there was no indication that there was more to it. Like, how much of that is going on in the world that you just don't know about? I think that that's one of the amazing things about this game is it's definitely a clockwork world. Like, I don't think there's a ton of things you can do to actually influence how very there are various different things have their final outcome. But what you can do is witness 
literally a bajillion different things. Like there's just so much more content in this game than you will ever see on one singular playthrough or even probably two or three singular playthroughs. Um, it's just incredibly detailed from top to bottom. Um, it, it feels like a living world, even if a lot of it is very predetermined in terms of how it actually plays out, which I'm not going to knock it for because honestly, just the sheer complexity here on, on display is kind of worth the price of admission, regardless of whether or not you're affecting things uh, in, a, in a big, huge way. For sure. I've never seen anything like it. And again, this is a very brave storytelling technique, but like for someone to lay out this much content knowing full well that 90% of the players might not ever see any of this. Like that might have been like 10 of those voice actors gigs was doing something in this one little area that most of us will never see. All those small things add up to a major thing, which is that the world feels like it exists whether you're there or not. And that is one of the biggest immersion building things I've ever seen in an open world game. And it's, this is the only game that's really done that for me. I agree with that on, on one level, but I disagree with it on another. On one, I think it does an incredibly good job of bringing you into it with regards to how well it um, characterizes a specific time and place. Like this game has so many amazing historical themes just sort of running throughout it, like how, um, say, people are treating minorities or uh, the rights of women. There's all this suffrage through line throughout uh, the various areas. The uh, As you mentioned up top, Clint, the uh, sort of expansion of the Gilded Age capitalism situation westward. Um, and on top of that, of course, uh, all of the underlying uh, past of our country, you know, with Lemoyne and the whole uh, Grays and Braithwaite's thing in the the Old South area, I think that all rings so true, and like also puts us in a place where you can see all of that detail on display. To your point, though, there are also things that sort of break me out of immersion with regards to like they have a very specific way they want every scene to play out. Like every mission does only end in one specific way, and I think that's Again, I'm not I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I'm just saying this is a very specific choice because they clearly have like not only a story they want to tell with Arthur, with the gang, with everything that's going on here, but also they have a very specific way they want to say it and even frame it. Like there are specific screenshots that you will see that everyone is going to see because they really have a feel for the aesthetic that they want to put into this game. And I think this is actually one of my biggest things about the game. I, I think you're a casual observer unlike most games where, where you're the impetus, like you're the one making the change in the world. I think Arthur is just a window through which we get to watch what happens to the world before it moves on without him. Like, I don't know. It puts you in a more powerless state, even though you're a powerful man. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a weird juxtaposition there. That's a Brian word guys. No, juxtaposition. no, no. you're, you're, you're powerfully able to uh, kill people for sure. Um, you're not necessarily powerfully able to alter the course of history, which, you know, maybe you're not used to from a video game perspective, but is absolutely true in real life. <laughs> yeah. And I'll agree with Brian's point about the way they present things as well. I think of it as kind of like a rock star special. Uh, they almost want this, I think of it as a very like cinema-like experience for how they do things. Like um, as a quick example, you know, the town of Rhodes in Lemoyne, um, I ended up going to uh, Rhodes before the missions took me there because of, I think I was doing a horse race or something like that. So I ended up in Rhodes and I'm like, oh, here's Rhodes. 
this looks cool over here, but I don't want to do anything here yet because I'm not at the point in the story where the scene's going to be, the table's going to be set for me. And what do you know, uh, once you move camp to get to chapter three, there's a couple of missions that take you into Rhodes and really present it to you in a different way than you get just by doing the standard open world, I'm walking through this town. It just has a really cinematic eye for like the the, what they want to do from a table setting perspective as you go come into each area. And I think that's really well done, like when it is done. But it isn't a true open world from that perspective. So the another thing this open world does great, as you said earlier, Brian, is just having so much stuff to do. Besides, of course, all of these story missions and the stranger missions, uh, there's a number of challenges you can do for things like robbing people or collecting herbs or going hunting. Uh, you can go hunting. You can go fishing. There's legendary beasts you can track down. Down. Um, you can, you know, uh, craft things at your campfire. I don't know if you guys made split point bullets. Um, it's something you can do for free that ups your damage on each gun, but you have to make them one by one, which I said, Psh, I'm out of this. I'm just going to take the handicap. <laughs> yeah, I like how they make even those like little tasks that might seem menial or that are clearly like little dumb side quests. Like they have some small meaning to the story, right? You're providing for your family. Like you guys are destitute. You have no food. You need to make money for the gang so they can live. You need to find food for them because a lot of them are unable to do that for themselves. Like you feel the need to do those things for your group. And then those little side quests don't feel so meaningless. Or like Dutch has a plan and he just needs some money. So knock over yeah. a few banks. You're <laughs> the guy that's supposed to make these grand plans happen. Just do stuff until it works. <laughs> that's very true like arthur is kind of like the the agent of change or action for the whole group and but i want to i want to circle back on a quick point that josh made about the split point bullets because i think um one thing that this game does incredibly well is just not only tell an incredible western story but just be sort of an open uh open-ended cowboy simulator like you don't need to necessarily follow any of these stories you can sit at your camp and make coffee and uh, create split point bullets and go fishing and hunting, as you said. But along with all of those things, there are an incredibly large amount of very detailed, very long animations. Uh, this is a game that's incredibly deliberate about what it is having you do and what it's making you watch your character do. Mandatory deliberations, too, or mandatory yeah. animations. Yes. <laughs> like every time you are picking up a plant and uh, gathering the seeds from it or whatever the hell you're doing, gathering herbs, uh, you are watching Arthur like do that painstakingly. You are watching him skin every animal. You know, it is very deliberate with what it's showing you. And while that might be annoying, it doesn't take you out of it. I feel like if they let you just skip that cutscene, I don't know, it like it's that jarring thing that takes you out of it. I feel like they fully immerse you in the world and they, for better or worse, they don't let you pull the reins on that. I agree with that. And one of my favorites was when you drink a beer, too. You are drinking that beer. It's not like a tap water, <laughs> like you're shotgunning the thing. Oh, by the way, speaking of drinking beers, one of my favorite missions in this game, I haven't played it since 2018 all the way through, but I still remember getting drunk as fuck with Lenny in, uh, in uh, <laughs> Valentine and causing some mayhem there. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's yep. a great mission. So Lenny, uh, I, and man, you're, you're absolutely right, Clint. The Lenny quest is such a fantastic introduction to your first like real town, right? Like we, we obviously open the game in Coulter, you know, it's cold, it's snowy, it's shit. It teaches you that you are shit without a horse and you can't get anywhere. And it introduces the gang, but really Valentine is where the game opens up and turns into an open world cowboy ass cowboy game. 
Yeah, and then I feel like in Valentine, you it's almost like your introduction to all the characters, too. I mean, there's... I don't even remember how many, but there's like at least a dozen or more... There's got to be more than a dozen individual characters that are in the Vanderlyn gang. And some of them have very obvious uses and some of them are more subtle, but they all have something to provide to the gang. And you get to spend some intimate time with all of them in Valentine, which I really enjoyed. Not just in Valentine, but in the camp itself as well. This was one of the, I think, one of the more interesting things about the game was narratively how it... um, told so much of the backstory around the campfire like Clint you said that you can miss so much of the stuff going on in this game I think that happens for the stories as well if you're not hanging around in camp and just listening to people talk um, it's not going to give you this other stuff and one of my favorite things is uh, so in most games if that were to be the mode of storytelling you would walk up and then all of a sudden the story would just start In this game, you like walk up and everyone's already laughing at a joke that somebody said about something. And then you're hearing a story as it's being told like halfway through. And yeah, you could get up and leave or you can sit around and hang by the campfire and hear the whole thing out. It feels naturally like it was happening before you got there and you're just showing up to the party. I don't know if that was like deftly done and like it's actually introducing it that way or if you really did just walk into the middle of it. Yeah, some of my favorite moments in this are when you are, you know, as, as you mentioned, like at a campfire sing-along, and I'm thinking specifically in Chapter 2 here, you know, at Horseshoe Overlook, and, you know, you have the gang getting rowdy around the campfire, and then in the background, there's Dutch and Hosea having, like, a serious conversation, and you can go over and, like, listen in on that and get some really interesting uh, context for what they think about what's going on in the with the gang and with the world, and... You could completely miss all of that. Like, this game really hides some of its more serious moments um, away from you uh, in favor of what, whatever your, you know, wherever your whims take you. You can go, if you'd rather be by the campfire drinking, by all means. <laughs> so be it. One of my favorite little things of this game that didn't actually happen to me, but um, I read that if you don't go back to camp for long enough of a time, then Dutch sends people out to find you. And it's almost like a reverse mission where you're like, oh, Lenny's lost somewhere. Go go find Reverend Swanson. He's drunk at a train station. Go pick him oh, up. Oh, he's not... He's not drunk. That dude's a crack addict. I don't know if you guys (laughs) noticed this, but if you actually think it's heroin, if you open his Bible that he's always carrying with him, if he ever leaves it somewhere and you open it, he's got a full on like a heroin needle in there. Like (laughs) that dude is preaching more than the gospel. (laughs) I mean, this is a great like inroad to just talk about some of the characters that we have here, because obviously, you know, we, we should I think the characters are kind of the story in this game. Like as much as the setting adds to everything that's going on, it's really a story about the gang and its members and specifically Arthur Morgan, uh, a.k.a. the person portrayed by Roger Clark, who absolutely kills this as the voice actor. I agree and disagree. We're going to get into this later, but I think the world is the main character of this and everybody else is just part and parcel to what's going on around it. But you're right. I'd argue Dutch Vanderland is the main. So here we go. You think he is? Mexican standoff. Okay. All right. (laughs) Guns out, everybody. All right. So, but that's a great thing though. Like we all took, we all spent about a hundred hours with this game, I'm assuming. And we all came away with something different. Like I found this game to be highly political and historical and political you seem to find it more as a character driven thing and josh what was your take that it was all about dutch the whole time yeah the story was about the downfall of the dutch gang which was about the downfall of dutch yeah i think it's about the downfall of america but that's just me Ooh, oh 
I'm going deep. This sounds like a three-word review <laughs> prelude <laughs> right here. But no, I mean, I think I think we're all partially right because this is such a rich text and there's so much going on here. You know, we mentioned up top 500,000 words. And to some extent, like, you can focus on the world and, and take a ton from that. Like, as you mentioned, Clint, all the political, environmental, and power changes going on in the world. You can look at the gang and see, like, all of the various character stories within it. Or you could look at the gang as a whole and realize how their way of life is being snuffed out. It's all fascinating. Um, but maybe we, we, you know, we've already talked a bit about more, uh, Arthur Morgan, who, you know, as you said, your player character, the, the change agent, the, the action guy, the heavy, he's the guy that basically makes shit happen at the, the gang, but we haven't talked at, at length about Dutch, who I think is super interesting and we should go into a bit more. I was really glad to see the focus or as much focus as there was in Red Dead 2 on him, uh, because for me, he was maybe one of the more interesting antagonists I've had in a video game before. Really loved him in the first one. Loved to see the prequel of what happened beforehand. He's essentially the cult of personality. He's the guy... This man exudes the dangers of living in an echo chamber. This is what happens <laughs> when, when when a man has taken control of people's hearts and souls and then everyone is exuding the same message over and over again until you will do anything he says just because he says it. He, and he is an idealist to a fault. You know, he's always, I've got a plan, Arthur. Um, <laughs> You've got to listen to me, damn it. Like, and don't lose faith in me now. He is definitely like the the exact exemplification of that Batman quote where you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. I genuinely think he, he was a good man and he had good intentions. But again and again, okay, so... I, he views, or I don't know if he views them as his adopted sons, or if this is how he gains control over people. But he refers to all these people in his gang as his adopted sons. Like, I saved you, now you owe me. And he keeps harping on this message that America is trying to kill us in our way of life. Fuck those guys. We have to do anything we can. And you can break any moral boundary you want, because they are the ones imposing on us. We have to fight back. And mm. because of that, Arthur, who I think is a genuinely good man at heart, does terrible things and ruthless things because he's fighting for his family. Because that's how Dutch made him feel. That's my take. Yeah, I think I think you're you're I think you're right about how Dutch manipulates people in the gang and, and I think we see throughout the story, I don't know necessarily you know, you can never know a person's heart, but it strikes me that he either was as craven and manipulative as the end of the game has him portrayed, you know, the mask slips, so to speak, the whole time, or he was not. And this was something that was brought about by the course or the things that have happened throughout this game. I personally think it's the latter, but either way, the end result is the same to your point, Clint. The first bank robbery of the Dutch Vanderlyn gang had Dutch Hosea and Arthur knock over, I think it was some Ohio bank, and uh, stole $5,000 and spread it out to the poor inhabitants of the city. Uh, so at first, it was like a true kind of Robin Hood sort of thing. Um, but I think the crux of the plot, and I think they didn't focus on this enough, they should have, um, during the Blackwater robbery that goes wrong at the very beginning, or even before the game starts, uh, Dutch murders an innocent mother. Um, and that is kind of like, I think that's where they should have like had the lever of, this is where things start going south. But they don't. But you can slowly see it turn that way. Like, 
again, I think Dutch is getting more desperate as he's feeling more and more squeezed out. Again, he's trying to move west. He's being forced east. He knows that the life that they want to live and continue to live doesn't exist there, and they feel like they don't have a place in this world. And the more they feel trapped, the more violent they get, and the more he starts breaking bounds and killing people, hurting people, because he keeps making excuses for himself, and it gets out of hand quickly. Yeah, I think I think this is perfectly exemplified by two other members of the gang, uh, maybe the angel and devil on Dutch's shoulders, respectively. Hosea, <sighs> the elder statesman, the uh, uh, other father of Arthur, who is the first protagonist uh, of a major AAA game to have two dads, from my recollection. But um, <laughs> also the the devil, uh, Micah. Micah Bell, who is just an evil asshole, a lover of killing, and um, basically uh, has his major first plot point be the massacre of a town for which he is then known throughout the rest of the game's history uh, for. Uh, thank you, Micah Bell, for making Dutch Vanderland's gang's name absolutely shit in Strawberry. <laughs> what a douche. Yeah, should have let him die in the prison, but we didn't. Interesting thing with Micah was they introduce him. Uh, one of the earliest cinematics he has, he punches Bill Williamson in the face. And you play the first <laughs> game, you're like, I've been hunting this guy down for so long. Like, Micah was on my good side at first because of that. I'm like, yes, <laughs> yes, punch him again. I don't know. The, the handlebar mustache should have let you know he's a douche right off the top. Oh, I grew my uh, my Arthur had a mustache on him the whole time. I'm like, uh, oh. everyone else has <laughs> facial hair. I guess I do, too. I went full mountain man. Yeah, I was a beard guy, personally. Um, we, we'll talk more about uh, character customizations and uh, your Arthur later. But I want to talk a little bit more about the rest of the game, cause, or gang, rather, because um, there's just so many good characters here. I mean, we have John Marston, who we, we cannot discount. He's the protagonist of Red Dead Redemption 1, and you get to see sort of how he became who he is. Um, there's so many others, but do you guys have any thoughts on John? He's the, he's the classic little brother. Like it was fun. Like, so in Red Dead, our only, our only ever moment with this gang entirely has been with John as the main character. But then you come to realize like he was like the runt of the litter. Like Arthur was like the big imposing older brother. And he was just like the little brother taking shit. Like, I don't know. It was kind of cool seeing like the table slip that way. I love that too. I think it's so great to like get that context and just to see like how, Arthur, you know, uh, throughout the courses of the story, and we'll talk a little bit about like how events played out, but took him under his wing and kind of put him where he ends up being for that first game, Red Dead 1. Mm-hmm. The passing of the hat at the end. The passing yeah. of the yeah. mm-hmm. What about Uncle and his lumbago? <laughs> <laughs> Uncle is, uh, there are so many like classic um, gang members at the camp but uncle is the one who i think is the most consistently one note but also hides the most underneath that one note performance like he is clearly smarter than he lets on (laughs) and he hung out longer than anybody so if you play through the entire game not a whole lot of the gang is left together but uncle he still fucks around man Mm -hmm. he's still there he's not gonna be entirely helpful but he'll hang out he's 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 the ultimate come with guy he'll be there till the end just so long as you don't ask him to lift too much along the way. To Brian's point about Uncle being a little smarter than the average bear, maybe, I think that's true. Like, there was a campfire conversation. I didn't see it myself, but I'm doing some research for this cast, uh, where Dutch is talking about how America is... He's quoting the author Evelyn Miller, who you meet later on in the game, uh, but talks about how America doesn't have kings. People don't want to be kings. People, they take that themselves and has this big motivational speech, and Uncle kind of calls him out like, 
No, no, you want to be king. You you want all your knights around here. You want the royal court of Camelot in the west. And um, Dutch almost like he threatens to kill him. And uh, Uncle had a great <laughs> line. It's uh, put me out of my majesty, your misery. And Dutch laughs it <laughs> off after that. But like, yeah, like Uncle was a like sneaky. Okay, this is why John Marston kept him along so much, uh, <laughs> even when he doesn't work. I think that's exactly the point, and he's also the one who convinced John to build the house. You know, we'll talk about the house for sure, but he's the one who basically said, you know, this isn't a place fit for a lady or a family, and, you know, gets him to actually do the thing that he does in the epilogue of this game, which, uh, again, we'll, we'll definitely have a discussion about. So, who else? Obviously, there's a variety of women and children, and, and, and not to be discounted either, they all have important roles to play. But I want to talk specifically about Sadie. Sadie has probably Ooh. one of the best arcs in this whole game from my perspective. Um, Sadie Adler uh, is the person you find in chapter one of this game. You barely even notice it probably when it's happening because there's so much chaos, but her whole family was killed by the O'Driscoll game. They sort of made their way through the area while they were pursuing, I guess, probably Dutch and his gang. And you basically rescue her, uh, but she's probably thinks you're just like those other people who just killed her husband. Um, and they Dutch makes it a very specific point early on. We're bad men, but we're not those kind of bad men and invites her into the gang. And I think that was a really interesting moment. And over the course of this gang or this game, she becomes a completely different person. Yeah. I think it really speaks to the morality of, of the world that you're living in. Like everyone, you have to choose between levels of bad. There is no good or bad. There is very bad and sort of bad in a lot of gray areas in between. Again, Sadie, I mean, it's even worse than that. I think they killed her husband and then had their way with her for multiple days. Like this, this woman was traumatized and she ends up flipping her shit, which, and then, but ultimately turning into a very strong, capable woman at the end of all this. Yeah. By the end of the game, she is one of the few people who you are, you know, at that point as John Marston going out with. And I think even throughout the course of the game, like one of Arthur's few confidants throughout the entire thing, you know, she becomes a capable, you know, gun hand and eventually a bounty hunter in her own right uh, throughout the course of the game. I think she's just such a great arc as a character and they leave her story open ended. Like she goes to South America at the end of the game. Uh, I want to see the Sadie Adler story as <laughs> some future content <laughs> <Yeah>. for sure. <laughs> she was interesting and and they could have done so many things with like not the woman scorn but like the hurt woman thing but again they played it so well and she was such a strong character at the end. She she came out strong as a result of all that which I really liked instead of her being broken. Yeah, yeah, it was one of those things where like had a hard story you know, she, I think it helps definitely that like she had a hand in ending the whole O'Driscoll thing. Like she was one of the people who a- ended up being there when that was all put to an end. You know, the O'Driscoll game no longer no longer exists. <laughs> but what I really like is that in a in a standard video game or, or standard movie, you would see her killing Colm O'Driscoll and having her ultimate revenge, and instead she's watches on unfazed as he's hung for other crimes. Like, and that's just the end of it. Like, this game does a really good job of not tying up everything with a pretty bow. I don't know. It feels more natural, more I don't know if I'd call her unfazed by that. She starts uh, murdering the other O'Driscolls nearby. (laughs) As we do. It's part of the game. And then shoot out. Pew, pew, pew. (laughs) It was a different time. (laughs) I think their games went, uh, the guns went pow, pow, pow back then. I think it's different. (laughs) Yes, more pow, pow than pew, pew. 
Speaking of the combat, this game did have a whole lot of it. Don't let Clint's thing about this not being GTA 5 let you think, <laughs> oh, we're just going to be talking out our problems here. <laughs> no, this is absolutely true. This game, in uh, from a mission-to-mission perspective, includes a lot of gunplay, and it is mostly, mostly it's a cover-based shooter. Uh, you know, I think it's pretty basic, uh, you know, go into cover, pop up, shoot someone. Uh, weirdly, you know, I think it's very competent. Uh, I don't think this game's controls are all that great, and it's so hilariously outclassed by everything else this game is doing that, like, the combat is just kind of, like, the thing that you do to fill time while everything else, you know, while you're waiting to get to the good stuff, from my perspective, at least. It didn't It didn't even really matter. Like, again, yeah. and it, it's like Gears of War, and then they fill it in with, I feel like they almost make up for the bullshit by like, I don't know, here's some Deadeye stuff where you can just get rid of a whole bunch of guys real quick and look like a badass and be done with the combat. Like, yeah, that, that wasn't the focus. Yeah, it was cool to go a- ape shit, but it really wasn't the mode that the game was trying to portray, I think. I don't know. I feel like he, it wasn't trying to put its best foot forward on combat. Maybe not like a Gears of War might have been, but I do agree with Brian that I shot a lot of hats off of people, <laughs> off of their heads, going for their headshots. And you have to go for the headshots because you got to shoot someone in the body like five or six times before they pass out. So it's got to be the headshot. And like these people must have been wearing like top hats and like two foot tall things all the time because usually I wear my hat on my head, less so with these guys. I mean, those 10-gallon hats have a lot of extra room up there when your brains are the size of, I don't know, like... Yeah. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> no, but I... I thought the like the dead eye stuff was fine, and yeah, the combat wasn't too um, wasn't too challenge. Not it wasn't trying to be challenging. Like you had all these items you could craft. Um, if you had a particularly tough mission, maybe you could craft some express ammo or split point bullets or whatever, um, and then just take all the tonics you need to keep that dead eye up and just mow down people as they come. Um, but yeah, I feel like it did feel a little. I guess clumsy with a gun sometimes. Although half the time I wasn't in cover, which I think the game wanted me to do. Your crosshair is a lot more steady when you're inside cover. This is one of those things where most of this game is so stellar and exemplary in terms of like the acting and the writing and just like the joy you're feeling moment to moment going around the overworld that when you finally do end up in combat, you're like, Oh, this is just a normal video game again. And it kind of like brings you back down to earth. Um, that, you know, it, it's certainly not like a bad part of the game, but it's certainly not the strongest. I think it's it's probably the weakest, honestly, which is weird for a game made by Rockstar. <laughs> I will say this, though. Um, unlike a GTA where you could have a mission where you're flying a drone into God knows what and killing some mafia boss or whatever, you can fail it six times. It's so ridiculous that you don't give a shit, right? Mm. But in Red Dead, it's all about narrative and forward motion of that narrative. And when you're constantly having to repeat missions because you're failing, that breaks the narrative. I feel like this is meant to be, it's meant to make you feel like a badass. Mm. Get your way through this crazy combat where you can take out 12 guys and move along with the story. Don't go back because it wants you to constantly be moving forward and have that narrative flow. I will say that those uh, smash cuts of like kill cam are extremely well done and satisfying. Um, there's nothing better than like, you know, doing uh, a shot from far away and seeing the screen like pause and freeze frame on a guy's face getting blown apart or something like that. And I sound like a, a psycho saying that. They were very hyped on the whole cinematic aspect. In fact, there is a 
there are multiple camera views from which you can experience the game, but they even have something where if you hold down the camera button, it's called cinematic view. And what it will do is it will zoom out and give you some crazy cinematic view. And then it will change the view randomly as you move around the environment to be exactly like a movie. Brian, that's what they were going for. They wanted you to feel like you were watching a Western movie that you were directly influencing. I think that specific feature is best used when you're on a horse, though, not in a combat situation. Like, <laughs> Oh, for, for sure. But, but the thing you were just describing is how they get that into the combat as well. Yeah, when you have to, when you have to go through, through a long carriage ride from here to there and you're listening to story, like that's how you do it cinematically. I agree with Clint about this trying to be like cinematic combat, but I don't think they communicated that well enough or what they expected you to do. Like the thing I mentioned about um, you being less steady with your aim when you're not in cover, I didn't realize that until maybe the last five hours of me playing this game. Because before that, (laughs) I'd get in cover when I was in a giant firefight and people are shooting at me. Um, But when it's like me tracking down the one or two stragglers, I'm not getting in cover because I'm trying to like snipe them as they come out over there and kind of move around to get the better angle. Um, and I think that's where some of my uh, hat shooting came in pr- into play because things would wiggle around just a little too much. This isn't a game where you're failing missions and it's because they want to keep the narrative moving forward. Like no matter how, you know, shooterly proficient or challenged you are, like I can count on the number of one in, or on one hand, the amount of times I failed a mission. Like I'd, I'd imagine it's the same for everyone here. Um, it's just not... It's not the point of it is to be a challenging shooter. It's to missions are used to characterize the gang and like move some sort of point of characterization for someone in the gang forward rather than it is to like say this is a really interesting mechanical challenge. Yeah. Yeah. This is a narrative game. It's meant to this is a movie that you're supposed to be the main character of not anything you're ever supposed to be. I don't want to say you're not supposed to be challenged by it. There are challenging parts, but it's. The, the tide is ever supposed to be moving forward, both in the story, in the direction of the country, in the direction of everything. Things move on, whether you're with it or not. Get moving. There is no going back. Like, that is like the main theme of the whole thing. I totally agree with you, Clint. Like the most important thing about this game is that you are always moving forward, always moving. Everything's always changing. Characters are changing. Locations are changing. But to that end, uh, we start off on the run, as you would expect, in the mountains, the Grizzlies, aka the Rockies, uh, in Coulter, definitely not Denver. Um. <laughs> <laughs> a little little point about this too. I thought this was a fun little stroke too. Was. Um, you know, Red Dead 1, they have the prequel, you know, like there was a thing that went wrong at Blackwater. Uh, and that's like the extent of backstory knowledge you have about the game. That is the exact same backstory for this game, too. A thing went wrong at Blackwater. It's the same thing. And you're taking it from the point where you know things from Red Dead and going forward over here, running from the law after a failed robbery. And I like how they started you off in a blizzard in the middle of the mountains. Like they start you on a back foot. Like, I don't know. The starting point feels very good, and you're consistently trying to get better, but you're always like one step forward, two steps back. 
yeah, I think it's, uh, on, on top of everything you guys said, it's a great introduction to the characters, how they support each other, how they welcome a new member, as we always mentioned, with, or we just mentioned earlier with Sadie Adler. Like, I think it's just a really deft introduction to who everyone is, what the stakes are with this gang, uh, their history, and then uh, also it is pretty straight line in terms of narrative. Like, they're not, they're teaching you mechanics, they're not allowing you to sort of go right away into that big open world, which I think is also a good sort of point of advancing a story introducing people and tutorializing all in one fell swoop i love this first area as the tutorial uh narrative like the narrative was so driving forward on this i loved it and it was well narratively placed as was everything in this game i never felt like oh i'm in the tutorial area there was like again there was reasons you're on the back foot we're starving we need food and, and but you like feel that it's not like some like misplaced like oh whatever please go learn how to do the hunting thing like i don't know you gen you genuinely felt like these people need you to go do this please go take care of your people and they, they teach you how to do these little things and even as you move into valentine like you're learning to do like the robberies or this or that like it, it's all in service of the plot and it's they do it so well that you don't notice it's happening almost I like the transition from Coulter to Valentine. Basically, the, the first train robbery is what takes you out of the mountains and into um, the, you know, out of the winter and into the spring down in Horseshoe Valley Overlook um, in Valentine. And I really like that. Um, as you guys have already said, moves the plot forward through action. It contextualizes the characters with Dutch. It's always, we're going to use this next scheme to get where we need to be. Um, you know, it just, it's all pulling in the same direction and I love it. Uh, that being said, Valentine, you know, uh, I know we have varying feelings about how this chapter plays out, but it's the first part where the game opens up and says, go, go and be a cowboy. <laughs> this was a great part about the game where you get to Valentine chapter two and you have the open world there. It's not, you're stuck in a narrow mountain pass fe fighting for your survival. The gangs reached Horseshoe Overlook and there is... A bit of respite. You're able to like spread out and explore this open world. I felt like the story here, though, was I'll say too focused on uh, developing characters or introducing characters and relationships, um, and I didn't see any development of Arthur during this time. Like chapter one, his character was I'm competent at things, and I don't know if I'm good or bad. I read in my journal about it. But I like this about this chapter. Okay, so I'm going to take a counterpoint here. I think that this is where you become who you want to be. They give you a blank canvas of Arthur. They tell you who everyone else is. They explain the world. They explain who your your cohabitants are. And you get to pick the Arthur you want to be without them prescribing, like, you're bad Arthur, you're good Arthur. You get to almost, like interact with all your friends and figure out like how do i want to be in this weird messed up family and then you get to decide yeah i think the the perfect sort of example of what happens in this chapter is uh me going and protecting some homesteaders from outlaws seeking protection money and then turning around and doing a shakedown of a farmer for a debt he owes to leopold strauss a minute later um so <laughs> <laughs> you know as you said clint this is like kind of the place where you get to set the context for all of the things that are to come in this game and I like, I really like this chapter for that. I think it's really open-ended. It's miles more like broad and meandering than the Red Dead 1 chapter 2, which is, you know, your introduction to Amarillo and um, the reload to go, you know, figure out how you're going to go after Bill Williamson. I think this is a really good evolution of that personally. 
and I will be honest, I spent a lot of time here. Like I was not in any hurry to progress the story. So this is where they open the world to you. This is where they show you all the mechanics. I spent a lot of time hunting or fishing or doing this or that because I wanted to explore like the world and what it had to offer. So yes, this chapter takes a long time. I don't know how long it takes if you're trying to get through the story, but for me, it took a long time because I was seeking my way through it. I didn't try to mainline through all the missions. I'd do a mission with this guy here. I'd try some things over here. I did like how each mission like introduced you to a new thing. Like you get to talk to one of the guys and he tells you about Hosea. He tells you about hunting. Well, after that, I went hunting for things and I'm like, I need to do this for the gang. So I'm going to do this. And then after this, I'm like, I need to gamble for a while because I'm broke and I want a cooler <laughs> haircut. So I would do that for a while. And then I get in a fight about something and then I go rob a guy because he ran out of money. And like, I don't know, like it's like its own little story that the game wasn't even telling. I was just doing it myself. Mm-hmm. Clinch, you made the point earlier about um, you're deciding who Arthur is going to be. I will say one of the things I loved about the camp interactions was whenever you approached someone, your options were be friendly or be a dick. And it was yeah. so like stark and right on the money there. Yep, greet or antagonize. That's like your, your main <laughs> functions throughout the world. You could be like, you got a nice face. For punching peace and you can like ride off on your horse and just be a dick or like I, I loved how how much they let you interact and that's with every person in the world. It's not just your people in your camp. Like you could be that way with anyone. Oh no, you can also rob people not in your camp. There's a third option. Of course. Of course. Yes. And, and you can definitely do so unintentionally, as I did many times, because this game's control scheme, despite playing over a hundred hours of this game, continues to confound me. I cannot count the number of times I've accidentally held someone up at gunpoint or punched my horse instead of getting on it or whatever. <laughs> instead of brushing the horse. I have an important question. How many people here let the stranger and Valentine give them a hug? I don't even do you know I if I that. found I, I missed that one. What? Yeah. Maybe I punched him in the face. I don't know. (laughs) There was some poor veteran missing an arm in in Valentine. He's like always calling out. He's next to the bar. And and if you talk to him enough times, he's like, sir, can I hold you? And Arthur's like, I missed this entirely. Ugh, fine. Just don't (laughs) tell anybody. (laughs) (laughs) So if you just give that man a hug, he's your bro for the rest of the game. Huh. I like that. You see, you can have this entire like uh, ongoing storyline with this one random veteran. Uh, and, yeah, yeah. I, I it, this is one of those things where like this game is so massive and has so much stuff in it that you can never hope to see it all in one playthrough. To Brian's point about the controls of the game, I do kind of agree with that. Um, first of all, you had a lot of different control modes you had to remember things for. You're on a horse. You're in a wagon. You're on a machine gun. You're on foot. You're swimming. All that different stuff. You're you're fishing. You're hunting. Um, I forgot about the eagle eye tracking until the game would remind me all the time. Uh, but my favorite anecdote about this was um, when we were blowing up the Bacchus Bridge in, I think, Chapter 6. Um, and I go down to the platform beneath the uh, this bridge over a canyon to pick up the dynamite. And I think my, whole, or my um, hold X, like I did it to forcefully so it decided i pressed x instead and instead of picking up a dynamite like the mission said i should do my character just jumped right off the bridge <laughs> plummeted to their death arthur's like fuck it i don't feel like being a part of this crazy steam anyway bye <laughs> so i think there were some problems in the controls distinguishing between presses and holds and that led to some amusing situations what is your 
opposite of this. Okay, of course, this was made... Uh, yes, it came to PC later, but this was meant for a controller-based console. You can either have less verbs, which I think would suck for something like this because you want as many verbs to, to interact with the world in as many ways as you can, or you can get creative with control schemes. I feel like they did their best. I, I agree. I'm not going to try and armchair design a team of 2,000 people to how to improve their game. Um, but Josh will I'll say less verbs <laughs> yeah I, I think less is more is certainly something that we can levy against this game however let's let's bask in the more is more aspects for now and we can talk about that later <laughs> true, true. <laughs> so yeah Valentine horseshoe overlook you get there you set up camp camp's pretty interesting like um, there's a little bit of light base building going on in a little ways like upgrading different provisions you could get um and this which persists. was interesting yeah it was an interesting way to do and i like that it was kind of like you're in a mobile camp too so you, this place might be going somewhere but that's kick-ass uh deer skull that you got it's it's sticking with you yeah i don't know about you guys but i i tried to upgrade it um on, and on my second playthrough i was much more conscientious about you know donating to the group and updating my camp making sure everyone was comfortable. The first time I was just like, I need to see this story. Uh, this is an 80 hour game if I beeline it. Um, second time I, I moseyed a little more. Um, I definitely, uh, you know, made sure everyone was comfortable, got all my good upgrades for medicine and food and guns and uh, shelter. And, you know, uh, I stuck around for more parties at night, you know? I, I don't know why, but I think I really, I think it's the opening. Again, you feel so helpless and the, and the group is so in need at the beginning that I feel like I really hung on to that. The group needs you focus. And I spent a lot of time on my first playthrough, like really taking care of, like, especially in that Valentine chapter. Like I was hunting a lot, getting them money. I was trying to do stuff for the group. And I feel like that's like, I feel like that's the Arthur that Dutch wants you to be. Yeah, there, there's two aspects. <laughs> I, I agree with you, Clinton. And, and also, like, there's stuff to see at that camp. We've already talked about, like, things that are hidden in the periphery of this game. But some really interesting conversations not only happen at night, but also, like, I had a really good conversation with one of the women, Mary Beth, about how, like, things are changing. And Arthur's, like, having anxiety about, like, what his future looks like. Um, it's very strange because he's, like, he can't talk to any of the dudes in the camp about that because he's the heavy, right? He's the hardest guy in the camp. Um, but he can talk to the women like that because, you know, he's their protector and they're kind of also his therapists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they did a good job with alternating dynamics with all the characters. Again, there's at least a dozen. I don't want to say how many. I think there somewhere might between be 20. 12. I was going to say somewhere, somewhere between 12 and 20. And I feel 26, like six actually total members of the oh, Vanderland wow. gang are mentioned uh, ever, I think. Um, not well, all of them people appear died in the game. at the beginning, too. Yeah. There were three that die off camera. None of them feel repeated either. We're speaking about things not feeling repeated. Everyone has a purpose. Everyone felt like they had a reason to be there and why they belong to the gang and what they gave to the gang and again to Arthur and all these things. Like they all felt important for their own reason. Even like the shitty ones. Yeah. Like Bill. Bill's a total fuck. Even people that didn't play Red Dead Redemption 1, Bill's a fuck. However, he's a tool to be used in certain situations, and it works great. Everybody hates on the cook, too, Pearson, but he has his use, as does the Reverend, as does everyone, and none, no one is free of guilt or, or charm. Like Everyone has their bad side, their good side, and you have to figure out how you feel about them on your own. And Chapter 2 is like the only glimpse in this game that you get of like the gang 
in like a steady state that you might imagine they existed in before the events of Red Dead Redemption 2. Oh, yeah. I totally agree with that. Brian, you mentioned earlier about the parties parties that happened in the camp, and these were some of my favorite moments. In fact, I remember after rescuing Sean the first time in Chapter 2, when you have that party when you get back there, that's when this, like, something clicked for me about, like, oh, that's how they're trying to tell the story over here. Um, because you finish this mission, and you bring back Sean. He's a long-last gang member, and um, they have a party. They have a celebration, and you can go to bed right away, or you can hang out and listen with them. And the gang very, or the game very starkly presents that choice to you, or it says, you don't have a mission objective to talk to people right now or do anything. You're just here. There's a party. Enjoy or don't. Yeah, they get the objective is literally go to bed, and you can prolong the completion of that as long as you desire. <laughs> and you should, because that's where the game shines the most. Honestly, this game, this is where this game is unlike any other game. It's the opposite of the advice you should give yourself in your 20s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> FOMO is real. Hang out as long as possible. No, no. Most games would give you a prescriptive thing, and you're talking about how cinematic this game is and how it wants to present things a certain way, and that's true. However, it's very willing to also present a whole bunch of things that you will never see, and it knows you won't and it doesn't care it's like if you want to get deep on this we're going to give you even more and i love that about this and that is a risk i don't see other games taking and i think it paid off big time yes i i agree that this game is not shy about letting things go unseen and i love that for i i love it for that um there are other things that i i don't love it for in regards to how much content they create unnecessarily but we'll talk about that later <laughs> i don't know if you can even say unnecessarily though like the game these things happen and if you don't see them you don't see them i mean i'm talking about guarma but yeah we can we'll oh. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on from, uh, from uh, Valentine and, and Horseshoe Overlook, we immediately go into the Old South, right? We're in Lemoyne. We have two warring or rather feuding um, plantation families. And I think this is another place where the game is like, let's examine another part of what makes up um, America. Yeah. This is the Hatfields and the McCoys, guys. That's what this is. This is the Greys and the, and the what? What's the other Braithwaite's. one? Braithwaite's. Braithwaite's. I mean, that's what this is. This is the uh, established... What, these Confederate families, basically? Yeah, totally. Well, They're plantation families. Yeah, they have some we're, we're gold buried somewhere. <laughs> yeah, Confederate <Exactly>. gold. <laughs> this is Ocean's Eleven meets Hatfields and McCoys. It's it's so funny because I, I totally agree with you. I really like this chapter for a few reasons. One, Sadie starts to come into her own. I'm going to keep uh, beating the Sadie drum here. Two, the Greys and the Braithwaites are portrayed as stupid, shitty racists, rightly. Um and uh, three, you get to burn down a plantation. Uh, what's not to love? <laughs> Actually, I think multiple times. I think uh, I think the, the Braithwaite Manor is one of the most uh, touted and iconic moments in this entire game, which is crazy to say because this game has so many of them. But I'm pretty sure approaching the Bra Braithwaite Manor is like the big one of the big moments everybody remembers from this game. That's one of the moments where the gang is riding out and they are successful in what they're trying to do. And they're all together for once. Everyone is always infighting. There's always some bullshit. And this is the one moment where they're solidified in one view and one purpose. 
Yeah, it, it's so funny because this chapter starts with like Dutch and Hosea being like, yeah, we can play these stupid plantation owners against each other and steal their gold and get out scot-free. And it, it turns on them because this town is so small and insular that they do happen to notice a gang of 20 people showing up. <laughs> and, I think instead of insular, you meant inbred, but I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> uh, maybe both. Uh, let's go with both. Um, but um, yeah, and you know, they, they do end up like uh, offending the gang. Uh, and then inciting uh, said burning down of said plantation, which, eh, you know, it happens, I guess. You know, you mess with the bull, you get the horns. <laughs> well, they kidnapped their kid. Like, there's only one kid in the whole gang. They took the one child. They really fucked up there. Like, you took the most innocent member of the gang. Everybody, regardless of everyone's... Uh, leanings they all obviously turn towards that that's right micah could probably uh learn a thing or two from the the racist uh plantation owners i'm sure he would be fine with all of that but you know he does still ha at this point have loyalty to the gang so everyone rides out with the righteous indignation to burn this place to the ground and yeah as you said clint it's one of the <clears throat> one of the top five moments of the game for sure you also get the dog in this chapter <laughs> yeah, that's true Brian is it safe to assume that Gorma is your top number one moment for this game yes but we're going to have to wait to talk about Gorma uh, b before um, talking about uh, the big city your first introduction to the game's real major metropolis San Denis comes shortly after this as you're fleeing the scene of your gigantic arson I loved this whole chapter uh, the problem with chapter 2 was there was so much meandering I wasn't sure what the game was asking me to play Arthur as and they were trying to do that talking with you guys I see that they were giving you the blank slate but I was looking for a more direction like you know it, uh, what am how should I be doing this am I robbing people sure I'll do that a little bit oh I guess I have a code now I'll try sticking with the code um the last three missions, I think, of Chapter 3 in the Old South in Rhodes, then I really started to see the shape the game's plot was taken, and I'm like, okay, here's where the game is going. Now I know this is the character I want to play going into here, and I really enjoyed the game after that. Like, before that, it was a drag. I almost quit the game twice before that but uh chapter three roads came around by the end of roads loved it saint denis and everything thereafter just continued on with that see i think i know why that is because prior to saint denis you didn't know who you were supposed to be there is a revelation that we haven't talked about at all throughout this whole thing which is very important to the story and that is the fact that arthur has contracted tuberculosis which back then was an absolute death sentence in the middle of this campaign. You you definitely don't you don't get the actual diagnosis until chapter six, but he's he starts to realize that he is, you know, one, his way of life isn't long for the world, and two, he is also not the man he used to be health wise. Like even before the I think he's reading the writing on the wall to your point, Clint, for sure, by by the time we get to chapter four. Oh, he's looking like dog shit by the time he gets to San Denis. <laughs> Actually, he has a moment of uh, a moment of introspection, I guess. So this whole thing came about. You're talking about how Strauss lended out money to people, and then they would send in Arthur as the muscle. Well, back in Valentine, he he pushes on some farmer that took some money, Mister Downs. Yes, that he shouldn't have, and uh, he forces he threatens the man's life, and he tells him to sell his wife and his child to make the money because we don't fuck around 
and we don't give out charity. Basically, he told this man, and he coughs in his face. Turns out he contracted tuberculosis, and he left. By the time he gets to Saint Denis, if you look around, his Miss Downs is actually there selling herself. Whether Arthur knows he has tuberculosis yet or not, or where it originated, he understands that he's dying in that he has made a serious mistake in the way he's lived his life. And this is where you start to see things break for the gang too. Like before the echo chamber with Dutch worked, the more sick and the more face-to-face Arthur becomes with his own mortality, the more he realizes like, wait a minute, what the fuck? Like, I haven't thought this through enough. I need to give this a second, a second thought. And the cracks start to show and he starts to, I guess, break out. A little bit, yeah. I, I totally agree with like the, the trajectory. To your point, uh, Clint, this is the first start or place where you start to see some of the rupper, you know, the the repercussions of Arthur's action on real life people come into into picture. Um and to your point, Josh, it wasn't like a uh, necessarily a quest thing, but you can see the the Downs family in Saint Denis when you first go through there. But um, it it becomes a specific plot point in Annisburg in Chapter Six. Do you think that's why you liked it more because you had like a more prescriptive Arthur? I had an Arthur that was more interesting to me. Like if I had to sum up his personality in Chapter Two, it was competent. The rest of the gang messes up, and you come in there and fix their things, and. It works good as playing like the gang's heavy, but also like, did the gang want me to be bad or good? Like, um, I thought I was supposed to be like, oh, I'm having a change of heart, Arthur, because I tend to play good characters and all kinds of things. And then I have this downs thing where um, he goes and beats this man and says, sell your wife into slavery. And I'm like, oh, well, I guess I'm not good. So I'll start doing not good. But it, it was a little bit of like, I don't know how I should be playing Arthur. I'll make one quick point on that because I agree with you that like chapter two is the place where the game's writing is most confused in terms of like it accurately represents Arthur's mindset. You know, he's coming out of like a really crazy traumatic situation with the gang Dutch specifically where, you know, things went bad in, in Blackwater and he's not sure exactly who he is going to be as a result of that. And I think there is legitimately two paths, although I think most players will take the I'm not a huge shit heel path and <laughs> end up doing the the thing where you end up, you know, trying to Red Dead redeem yourself by the end of this game. <laughs> um, but there is, you know, there's the option out there to not do that and get the the wolf ending, so to speak. There are multiple endings to this game and we'll go into that. But um there has to be the option, otherwise it doesn't count for anything, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. And there is a morality spectrum, too. Like, that should be noted. There is a morality spectrum. And every time you do something, good or bad, it'll, like, move this needle, and you can see what that means. And while it doesn't necessarily change the outcome of the story, it does change how people interact with you. Like, you have a infamy system here where people will notice, oh, shit, that's that guy we've heard about. He's either a good man or a bad man. I don't know. It, like, changed dialogue and some... For me, that was the main purpose of the story, was just the driving of the narrative. So how people interacted with me was a big deal. All right, so a couple of things about Chapter 4 that I really loved. Um, first of all, the kind of mechanical thing. Sandini, Arthur arrives in here 
riding his horse around. He talks about how much he hates the city. The game does things to make you uncomfortable in San Denis. Uh, you want to ride your horse around. You want to go fast because, you know, you go fast to get to different missions. Um, but there's so many people in San Denis and there's so many damn policemen that if your horse, like, nudges someone the wrong way, then the law's on you. And now you're in a shootout and now there's 50 police coming around you, uh, coming after you. The game is, like, literally making it less fun to go around San Denis, uh, less free to go around San Denis. You have to, like, stop at stoplights in order to not get in a shootout here. There's another game like this, Mafia. I don't know if you guys have played this, but it was the only GTA-like that like imposed a speed limit on you, and if you didn't follow the <laughs> speed limit, the police would come out. You could shoot 10 guys with a Tommy gun, wouldn't be no big deal, but if you broke the speed limit, everybody's like, fuck that guy. <laughs> Coppers are after you. So like, I don't know, that kind of reminded me of that, but. My, my Arthur, like, rose to the occasion and became quite the gambling man. I don't know, I feel like you almost, you were almost brushing shoulders with the Mafia in this city. I don't know if it's oh, technically the Mafia or Bronte, what, but for sure. pretty close. Yeah. I loved Bronte as a, uh, Brian, word, juxtaposition. But Bronte's shown as, like, he's the kind of Mafia boss of New Orleans. Actually based on uh, um, actual, like, historical figure in the city's history from what I read afterwards um, but he's like Italian immigrant who comes over and starts running the crime there's a very stark comparison between him and Dutch um, and that both can do things but like Bronte will smile to your face and then talk shit about you in Italian to his buddies uh, whereas Dutch is shown as like I'm the honest, idealist outlaw. I'm not the criminal, I'm the outlaw. I think one of the most important missions in this game, at least to my mind, what I took out of this game, again, I see this game as the story of the downfall of America and everything that's breaking the beautiful Wild West. There's a there's a mission in which you have to attend a party and you're uh, trying to gain information on all these people. Good mission. E Every party that's a party, a party to the destruction of America is there. It's the army. It's the corporations. It's all these people. And again, it's the people that Dutch wants to like. That's true. The, oh the, yeah, the yeah, 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 yeah. Generals there too. Yeah, yeah they were there. And by all America, things, you mean the the natural landscape? Man is a simple beast, right? We need food, shelter, and water, right? Okay, cool. The American frontier was that in its most simplistic form. Every person provided for their family. They had land, they food, whatever. Food, food, water, shelter, okay? The corporations saw that as a way to make every person subservient to them, and they slowly encroached. They slowly encroached, whether it's the army, the government, whatever, the corporations, outside entities, all those things are slowly, like, we don't want that to exist anymore. We want, we want to own you, basically, yes. And that's what, Dutch was ever trying to get away from, and yet those are the people that he's butting up to in San Denis because he doesn't know what else to do. He's infatuated with them. Right. It's the thing he hates the most, but he but can't he get away from it. he wants the power. It's... Right. He's becoming the thing he hates the most, and they're all there at that party, and that's all he can... He, like, can't get away from it. It's what he wants the most, even though that's what he hates. I, I agree with you, but I think it's almost like a situation where he, like, sees what they have wants it and they completely reject him and that kind of breaks him there is the revenge factor and all of that where um after the trolley 
robbery that goes bad. It's like 90 bucks the gang gets instead of the thousands they thought they'd be getting. They were set up by Bronte. And Dutch wants revenge. Hosea says, let's let it pass. Arthur's the deciding vote on it. But this is, again, where Arthur actually starts calling out Dutch a little bit. Like, we have a code here. We don't kill for revenge. And Dutch is like, but we do this time. (laughs) If you notice, slowly, the two people that always end up in Dutch's corner are John and Arthur. It's because those are the two people he claims are his adopted sons, right? Again, it's the echo chamber. It's it's the manipulation. He's claimed these two individuals as his sons. He can always, no matter what, get them back in his corner and from there get the rest of the gang on his side. And the further you get in the game, one of them will be against him. The other one will be against him. But by this point, both of them are starting to be against him. And that's where Dutch becomes unhinged because he no longer has the backing he used to have. I think it goes a little beyond that. The chapter ends with the bank robbery, which is a great set piece. Um, but Hosea gets shot during that. And Hosea was almost like the restraint on Dutch was how I saw it. Like he was the voice of reason, which he didn't have anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Not only is the voice of reason gone, but also his two main guys that he could always count on no matter what were also starting to waver. It quickly started to spin out of control. And then Lenny died. Fuck that. I want to call that back. Yes. Chapter two, Lenny was the best. Yeah. And then he, and then in, in chapter four, he's unceremoniously killed on the way out of this bank job. And I think all of the things you guys described, you know, the killing of Hosea and Lenny, uh, RIP Lenny. Um, and, uh, of course the, uh, losing of the faith of Arthur and John puts Dutch in a bit of a no man's land. Uh, And it also puts this game in a bit of a no man's land, namely chapter five, Guarma. (laughs) So this is funny for, this is Brian's like maybe least favorite chapter. It sounds like Guarma. He's like, why did we even go there? Yes. And for me, you know, I like the little tropical paradise visit, you know, it provided some different scenery, some different um, things going on. Dutch is becoming more, I don't want to say unhinged, but more unattached to the code he professed before. He uh, kills the woman because he's like, she was going to betray me. How'd you know that? Well, it was in her eyes. I'm going to be honest. I haven't played this game since 20, like that far in, since 2018. I played all the way through right off the bat. In subsequent playthroughs, I probably got through Valentine maybe a little bit more. But I don't remember this section at all, which means I didn't find it offensive like Brian did, but I also didn't find it to be massively important either. Yeah, I, 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 I would agree with you, Clint. I don't find it, like, offensive. Like, I, I agree with Josh, and it's very pretty. But at the end of the day, like, it's something that could have been handled in a mission, not a 10-hour chapter where we're divorced from literally the rest of the game, camp, the gang, like, every sense of progression that we've been building up to to this point. And, like, I get it as, like, um, sort of a sea change for like the fortunes of the gang, which it absolutely is. But at the same time, it's just a way overdone way of doing that and for way too long for my taste. I agree. It could have been a few missions shorter with it, even though I do like what it was. But if it didn't fall apart slowly, would it have felt weirder? Like, obviously, okay, so Sandini is the last moment in which the gang is together, right? Gwarma they're spread apart, they try to bring them back together, they get back, and then they try to put the semblance to back together, but it's never quite what it was before. If that had all happened more punctuated, would it have felt like it was just like slapped together? I don't know. 
I, I think you're, and we should just go ahead and move on to chapter six because that's where the rest of the good part of this game continues. Um, but, well, uh, I will say <laughs> chapter five did have Lakay, the Bayou's camp, where the gang well, yeah. gets back together from there. So I feel that was half of the chapter. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. Um, Guarma is not the whole chapter. You're, you're right. You come back, and it, as you guys mentioned, you're trying to put the gang back together, but it's just, it's not the same. And I mean, that second half of the chapter is important. That's where you get the TB diagnosis of Arthur. That's where John Marston is in prison. And Dutch says, don't, we're not going to go for him right now. Or he's scheduled to hang and, you know, we're going to deal with our problems here first. And Arthur and Sadie go off and do this hot balloon escapade to free him. Um, is that all still chapter five or is that chapter six? I can't remember. I'm sorry. It starts in chapter uh, chapter five. You actually bring him back in chapter six. Yeah, I, I guess what, it, what my, my beef is not with chapter five as a whole, then. It's with just the Guarma section. Guarma. Like, I, I do feel. Iguanas. Yeah. yeah. Too many and, iguanas. And, <laughs> that, that's really the problem, isn't it? Um, but no, to, to your point, like, I think the rest of it, where, like, you're trying to, like, pull back the threads of this dispersed gang, and, like, some of them are hiding out in this, um, you know, as you said, in Lakay in the the bayous like that is effective i especially like the fact that like at that point the cash box is gone it means no one's investing in the gang anymore you can't invest in the gang anymore the gang is no longer something with a future i think that's such hmm. a poignant thing i didn't even notice yeah you're sl- i did because that's again a line that my arthur took heavily but yeah, you're slowly losing members. The people you bring back aren't invested in the same way that they used to be. You can't invest any longer. And even then, that's I feel like that's the moment that you and Dutch are no longer together, right? You have your TB diagnosis. You're rethinking everything he's told you because your outlook has changed. Also, you're essentially your younger brother has been... Dutch has told you to leave him to the wind. You're like, what the fuck? Would he leave me to the wind? Like, are, are we not all family? No longer are we all family. Okay, so wait a minute. If that's not the case, well, then what is true? Because that's the only thing you've been preached to the whole time. This is such a good thing to point out, Clint. I totally agree with you. This is like literally the point at which the redemption in Red Dead Redemption starts to become a thing. Like this is where yes. Arthur takes a turn. And thinking about talking about like the change in chapter five too. Um, there was a point in chapter two where you do the uh, train robbery that was John's idea after you throw the oil tanker on the tracks and the Pinkertons or something comes down on you afterwards. There's a gunfight, of course. Uh, But people are like, they came so quick. Was this a setup? And everyone's like, nah, nah, it wasn't a setup. It was bad luck. Um, In Guarma, uh, Dutch is like, I think we were set up. And people start like entertaining this possibility. And once there is that loss of trust in the gang, like you guys say, the gang is at some level no more. It gets so insane that Dutch just flies off the fucking handle, guys. Like Molly O'Shea is his like girlfriend, I guess, like live in girlfriend, whatever. They've been together forever. He goes so fucking nuts. He blames if you're if he's talking to to uh, Arthur, he'll blame John. If he'll talk to this guy, he'll blame that person. It gets so crazy that he ends up shooting and killing. No, I guess he doesn't. But he blames her so much as somebody else does. Molly f- f- for giving them up. Turns out it wasn't fucking Molly. It was Micah. He's a dickhead on all fronts. Like 
but again, he's so paranoid that he, nothing is sacred. Not not the person who shares his bed every night. Not the man he has raised as a son for twenty years. No one. Like Dutch is unhinged. He is gone. All right. So being the more recent player of the full game at playthrough, happens in chapter six. Molly comes back to the camp and says, I sold you out to the Pinkertons and told you where you were. And Susan, yeah, Susan ends up killing her, um, which Dutch doesn't disapprove of by any means, but... Which is wild. Yeah. Yeah, Arthur's (laughs) like, I don't think she did it. Another camp-splitting event. It comes to light at the end that the Pinkertons approached Molly several times. She never never gave them up. But Micah, but Micah did coming back from Guarma. All that, like all the inner gang politics in the in chapter five and six, is just it's a lot. I think chapter six, like I think front to back, is like one of the most dense and like tense storytelling chapters of this game for sure. But of almost any game, like there's just so much advancement and. Not advancement, I guess the opposite of advancement, um, decline that happens during this period of the game. One of the things I loved about Chapter 6 was the whole um, rainfalls and eagle flies dynamic. Um, especially with, uh, so the uh, there was this Indian tribe that you've been, or Native American tribe that you've been helping out um, during the... Uh, Wapiti tribe. The previous chapters, yeah, for sure. And uh, there's the chief Rainfalls who wants to keep peace, even if it means his people get screwed over. And there's his son, Eagle Flies, who wants to fight back against the United States and the army. And Dutch kind of takes Eagle Flies under his wing for the purpose of creating a distraction so that the game can escape upriver to New York City. Um, And really, like, Arthur sees Dutch using his charisma to influence this young man and he's like that's me at one point in the game he specifically says that's me and that's kind of like the real moment for me like where the story all came together like arthur is realizing this you know dutch has been more crazy lately but has he ever been sane And that specific event does definitely throw it into question because, yeah, like the Rain's Fall and Eagle Flies subplot where he's manipulating basically a tribe to go to war to draw out the army so that, you know, he can make an escape is, you know, it's brutal. That is a terrible thing to do on any level. Um, And I, I didn't even clock like the comparison to Arthur, but I did clock one other thing, which is this game was being developed during the Standing Rock protests. And I wonder if this was specifically inserted in as like a call forward to what is still going on today with the fact that, you know, we have native tribes that are still literally trying to dispute some of these same situations in our world today. I don't know if it has anything to do with that specific incident, because again, this game was written and voice acted over the course of like six or more eight, eight years. years. Eight years. <laughs> However, this is a pervasive theme throughout U.S. history. Like, this has been a, a problem forever. However... You don't need to use Standing Rock. You can use literally... Yeah, anything. this is not a, a one and done. <laughs> However, I will say, Josh, to your point, by the 
by the end of this mission, like Arthur saying the is this me situation, there's a moment where he is taken hostage, I think. And then at the end, um, Dutch could save him, but he walks away. Very clearly, now Dutch in his fucking crazy mind doesn't even trust Arthur anymore, who is by far his most, most loyal follower. And it comes to Eagle Flies. Eagle Flies saves him, gets shot in the process. And then Arthur's left saying, Dutch, what the hell, man? Like, you just left me here. And he's like, no, I didn't. It's like, now he's gaslighting him. Like, very clearly, this is th- there's nothing left. After this moment, there's no trust on any front between any of them. And it all falls apart. Like, there's nothing left. This comes back into play during the final train robbery where John Marston gets shot. You know, the one of the events previously alluded to in Red Dead 1, where he says, "My gang, I got shot, my gang left me, which happened because uh, Dutch and Micah said, oh, we're going to go check on him. Oh, uh, he, w- he was dead. Sorry, we couldn't do that. Um, and then John Marston comes back during the climactic, uh, I'll call it the final mission of the game. So what happens during this final mission is you're in Beaver Hollow with the gang, what's with what's left of the gang. There's a standoff between you and Micah and Dutch in terms of trying to convince him to be on your side because um, Arthur has found out along with Sadie that Micah has been the mole all along. Well, Micah's trying to get in Dutch's head and has been doing so, so successfully. Like, did you see their plan in Annisburg? when Dutch confronted uh, Le- Leviticus Cornwell. His plan was to ambush him on the docks in front of all of his guards and demand $10,000 and his boat. Otherwise, you know, there's going to be a shootout and there's going to be murder. It's a laughable plan. Terrible plan, terrible plan. And, you know, it's uh, it's not really a plan at all, but there's a shootout, you get out of that. Uh, but this last mission, Dutch... And the rest of the gang takes Micah's side. Uh, there's more shootouts. You escape through the caves. You get up on the mouse mountains. Your horse gets shot. Very sad. Uh, you pass your hat on to John Marston, and you say, you live with your family, as you've been kind of conditioning him to do during the rest of Chapter 6. Yeah, I, I think this is really sweet, because it's kind of a thing where like he clearly sees the end for himself, um, you know, uh, Arthur is, you know, he knows he's not long for the world, but he wants to pass along some good in the world. And he sees John as a venue for that, you know, specific, uh, instinct. I'm going to bring up something here that I can't believe we didn't even mention. I don't remember which portion of the story this happened in, but Arthur slowly realizes he's dying long before he gets his diagnosis. But yes, he finds out he doesn't have long for this world. And there's a moment afterwards where he gets, he's going on a, on a train, I think. And he, he's sitting next to a nun and basically he, he's having like this like minor confessional with her while they're waiting for the train. Basically like I'm a terrible person. I've done terrible things. I know I don't have long to, to be here, but can I find a moment? Is there any way that I can make a positive impact on this world before I go? And he's like having a crisis of conscience, And it's like one of the most heartbreaking moments of the, of this game or any game I've seen or any movie. Fuck it. Like, like this was like one of the most impactful moments in, in media ever. And I feel like every moment past that is just him trying to find just one way. What is one way that I can 
put a positive light on the end of my life. And I think he found John and trying to find a way to make John the family man that gets out of this being the one thing he can do. Man, I, I totally agree with you. Like that, <clears throat> that nun conversation moment is absolutely like it, it puts a bow on everything that he's been feeling up to that point and all of the events leading up to it. And I, I think it definitely like puts some really specific context on everything that follows. Like, that is a conversation that you don't even need to have to complete the game, but I think it's so powerful when you do have it. So speaking of not needing to have it to complete the game, missed it completely. Oh my God, dude, <laughs> you have to go watch it. I mean, watch it. Yeah. Go watch a YouTube video of it. It's really good. I don't even know if that would have the same impact, but I'd say living it, but yes, experiencing it in the moment in the world. It was like, it was like one of those flooring moments in I almost said cinema, but it's not cinema. You know what I mean? It's, yeah, cinematography via video game, sure. To Josh's point and, you know, to get back to, to chapter six and... Yeah, so you have the final mission. Uh, you lose your horse. There's a big shootout. Pass the hat to Arthur. And then you have your final duel with Micah Bell. Hmm, yes. The, the final showdown between your probably idealistic, redeemed, moral Arthur and the absolute shitheel of the game, Micah Bell. <laughs> or maybe just a couple of shitheels attacking just each a, other, you know? I mean, could be, but I think I gotta believe that's a staggeringly small amount of a population of people who played this game. That's fair enough. Uh, you fight Micah and a Dutch eventually comes out behind a rock and he's like, I'm walking away from both of you because he finally believes you that Micah has been the snitch the whole time. More importantly, you're left with Arthur and like what I would assume is like the, the conclusion of his story arc where you watch him die as he sees the sunset on a new day. It's like a symbolic way of him seeing like, yes, my chapter is closed, but a new chapter is opening and hopefully it's brighter than the one I've left behind. That's the way it is. That's the way it is. So you played the good Arthur too. Oh, is there two endings? I think it's less good if you're a dishonorable Arthur. Yeah, I've, I've, I've got the two endings. I watched them both uh, because I, uh, I I got only the, the one that you described, Clint, where the sun is rising, you die, you know, you have successfully fended off Micah in terms of he didn't kill you, but both he and Dutch abandon Arthur on a mountaintop to die. Um, but the other, the bad ending is Micah just kills you. You know, he, <laughs> he knifes your ass. Um, <laughs> Fuck that guy. Yeah. That dude's an asshole. All right. But anyway, so the one that you're clearly supposed to see is, is, is you, uh, again, symbolically watching the dawn of a new day. And hopefully what you've done is, is created a possible brighter future. And that future is your adopted younger brother, John, going on to live his life in a way that that is broken away from the, the life of the gang. Now, have you played the first one? Cause then you will know that obviously you tried to do those things and you can't ever escape your fate. Cause you know, you are who you are. Yes, you're absolutely right. You know, I'll believe that the ending of the game, the post epilogue ending works as maybe not as well, but it still works. Even if you haven't played red dead one, I like it better if you haven't, because then you don't, well, you don't know you're left with a mystery. 
Yep, mm. maybe John pulled his shit together. But then is the redemption arc John or is it the son who Arthur is also very close to? Maybe things were changed around just enough by having his father in his life just a little bit longer. Maybe he's the one that redeems himself. And I feel like that's, we're all dads here. I feel like that's the thing. Everyone's just trying to do slightly better than their dad every time until eventually someday someone's not a giant piece of shit. <laughs> when that will happen, we don't know. But maybe somewhere <laughs> down the line. So go. it goes into the epilogue after the death of Arthur. And now you play as John with the entire map unlocked, which is mostly the map you had before plus some extra stuff in the red dead's one land yeah but i think the important thing about this epilogue is not all the space you have to roam but rather the specific focus that it puts you as john in you are on pronghorn ranch you are a ranch hand you have literally hung up the guns um this is the point at which the game makes an extremely bold bet taking you from arguably your most empowered state Arthur with all his guns and ammunition although he is a uh, you know basically crippled from his illness so also inverting the power curve basically from chapter 4 onward which is another interesting choice this game makes but further doubling down on that in the epilogue where you are literally doing shit work as John Marston knowing that he is a badass <laughs> there's a mission kind of system you have where you can get a bronze silver or gold medal and um there's one of the common things is like get 80 percent accuracy or get 80 percent headshots all throughout the game and there's a home building mission where one of the goals is to get 80 percent accuracy on hammering nails <laughs> yeah that. your focus has changed I will say that even in this moment, there's some foreshadowing. Like, John still can't get away from his roots of violence. Like, he's going to be a ranch hand. He's trying to do all these things. And yet, even though everyone at the ranch knows that the name he gave them, whatever that was, was total horseshit and that he was not who he said Jim he was. Jim Milton. Like, yeah, yeah. They don't know you're not Jim. Like, they don't know who he is, but he's clearly, like, he's got fucking bear claws scratches all over his face he's a he's an outlaw he only got the job as a ranch hand because he scared off the lamari gang nearby and the um foreman was like well you don't know what you're doing but you got those guys to hang off so sure we'll give you a job you can make some fences to quote the guy from Taken, he's a specific man with a specific set of skills. <laughs> like, it's very clear that this man fucks shit up. And and even as he's trying to be an honest individual, his wife and his child are there with him, and he's trying to make an honest living. Like, the world won't let him do it. They're like, that's great that you're trying to do this, but we want you to go kill these guys. Is that cool? Or the people from uh, Strawberry who follow him back. And he shoots them because they're like, oh, you killed my brother somewhere, whatever. Um, And Jack gets freaked out about it. Then Abigail leaves him because it's like, oh, you're the unrepentant gun gun slinger here. I think this whole epilogue is just so interesting because it it is literally it is John trying to hang up the guns, but he can't like the only part of the epilogue wherein he succeeds is where he finally like proves his worth by running off a bunch of people who are trying to raid the, the ranch he works on. I disagree. Um, this is John being who he is and being unable to hang up those guns because he's got to be the hero. Yeah, no, no, I agree with that. That was where I was going with it is like, he, he literally cannot do it. He cannot hang up the guns. And that all culminates in the fact that like he eventually does that. He, 
earns the right from his, you know, employer to be vouched for to eventually purchase Beecher's Hope, which is the ranch he eventually ends up on, which culminates in the incredible musical montage of the house building, which is, as you mentioned, incredible. (laughs) It is one of my favorite moments, but again, every moment of his triumph has been purchased in blood, and that always comes back to haunt you. There is no... Mm-hmm. There is no situation where you can build a house on a on a foundation of violence and hope to come up with peace at the end. No, you're you're right. It's it's always like underwritten by some form of violence, which is just kind of John Marston's life and Arthur's life and Duchess' life. It's the whole gang's life. And it's really heartbreaking to see him trying to like change it, but it's all built on this foundation of sand at the end of the day because how does he end up purchasing that house? Well, he hunts down Micah who happens to be with Dutch, who happens to have the treasure that they got off that big score at the end of the last mission of Chapter 6. Well, let me have a rule and a saw and a board and I'll cut it. I'll climb up a ladder with a hammer and a nail and I'll nail it. Abigail does eventually come back to Beecher's Hope and you propose to her after rowing out onto the river and she accepts. Uh, it's actually with Arthur's ring that he gave to Mary Linton way back when. Um, it was in the bag that he gave to, to John. Yeah, yeah. But he goes after Micah even though Abigail tells him not to, which is important. You know, it's a fun, it's a good climactic going to the top of the mountain shootout kind of thing. Interesting in its own right. Uh, but John didn't have to do that. It's ultimately John being John. He'll never stop being John. And then that's what makes the second story like relevant, right? If he figured out a way to stop being himself, that wouldn't, that, that part of the story wouldn't exist. John can't stop no matter what. And unfor- unfortunately, as we find out from the second story, that does infect his child, Jack and everybody else in his family. Like it, when violence is your mode, there is no escaping it. Everyone around you will be infected by it. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it, it's so true. You're hitting on something that I was trying to get towards, Clint, which is this is a really deft mirror image of the epilogue from Red Dead Redemption 1. They're asking you as the player to hang up the guns. Same thing happens in the epilogue of Red Dead Redemption 1. You're asked to work Beecher's, Beecher's hope, hopefully towards happily ever after. And as we all know, uh, you know, spoilers for Red Dead Redemption 1, that does not come to pass. It's an interesting moment during that hunt for Micah Bell, where you find out that Dutch has reteamed with him, despite everything that happens before, but actually turns on Micah at the end and shoots him when you're in this nice climatic Mexican standoff sort of thing. Like you, uh, John, Micah, and uh, Dutch are all pointing guns at one another. I think it's because he's never, he's forced himself into a situation where he can't come to terms with his own bullshit. And then in that final moment where he's forced to choose, like he can no longer ignore any of this. He has to choose between the rat or the person that he chose to be his adopted son. Like, am I going to finally face my bullshit? He owns up to none of it, but he betrays one of them and walks away. Like he just can't even deal with his own shit anymore. He's so disillusioned at this point that he's almost nothing. But at least in this moment, he can be like, he can at least recognize that I was wrong, whether he'll say it or not, and then he'll walk away and never never have any other 
impact on the story from that point forward. And yet, <laughs> <laughs> well, there's got to be a sequel. Bom, bom, bom. No, so John finds the Blackwater robbery gold and pays off his mortgage and heads back home after. But you know what happens after that if you've played Red Dead One. Yeah, and for those of you that haven't, play it. It's a good stay game. Tuned. <laughs> <laughs> we might we might cover that in twelve years. Yeah, who knows? You never know. <laughs> it's probably going to be. You know what? They'll probably remake that. Sure, why not? Um, they don't even need to. They, I mean, they could just release it as really extensive paid DLC for Red Dead Two, and that would be pretty cool, actually. <laughs> I feel like this is this was five years ago. They should have done it already if they were going to do it. Yeah, it's probably not going to happen. And with that. Uh, Now that Arthur's story has come to an end and John's is merely beginning, let's sum up our thoughts on Red Dead Redemption 2 with a three-word review. My three-word review is Nature of Men. This is going to sound like a weird comparison, But like Planescape Torment, Red Dead Redemption 2 is a game that asks, what can change the nature of man? Red Dead Redemption is primarily a game about change, prompting the question, what can change the nature of man? In Arthur's case, it's realizing his time has come and he must try to right the wrongs of his past before it's too late. In Duchess, it's his inability to execute on his plan in the face of an ever-encroaching government. In John Marston's, it's trying his hardest to fight against his own nature to be there for those he loves. And throughout all of these changes in the nature of men, the times they are a change in as well, the gang's struggles against this change shows us that while we may not have the strength to defeat the powers that be or free ourselves from those that seek to oppress, we can still have each other's backs, and that when that ceases, it all falls apart. In the years since I first played Red Dead Redemption 2, I've thought about it often. It's a lot easier to make a game about guns and crime than it is about order and routine, but when I think back about Red Dead Redemption 2 as a whole, the most standout moments to me are the quiet ones. Not the gunfights or robberies, though they are fun as hell, but the serious discussions about the future, or the quiet night of drinking before it turns into a not-so-quiet night of drinking, or the building of something important together with your friends. In Red Dead Redemption 2, we start out on the run as Arthur and end up putting down roots as John. That's a lot of change. We should all be as lucky as Arthur and John, to have known good friends, known ourselves enough to understand the changes in our nature that we must make to become better people. My three-word review for this game is Slow Burn Gunslinger. Red Dead Redemption 2 is a game uniquely unhurried in how it reveals itself in gameplay mechanics, gameplay actions, and plot. It has a vast land to explore, and more side quests than you can shake a stick at. It is innovative in how it forces the player to slow down and experience life on the frontier, whether that's through skinning an animal, making coffee, or hanging around the camp at night and hearing your companions talking. I love the risk this game took there, but I can't agree with the plot pacing. After a promising start in the mountains, the gang arrives in Horseshoe Overlook in Chapter 2 and stumbles. Outside of the fishing mission, anything interesting that happens in this chapter story is only so in retrospect. Uh, The plot really feels like the player thrust into a vast open world, wandering around without enough direction. I spent too long wondering what the story was about and how I should be playing Arthur. The story does eventually find its footing, and 
by chapter four, it had its, its hooks into me hard. To me, this game feels like a TV series that gets really good in season three. The slow burn is worth it, but prepare, be prepared for the slow start. So my three-word review is unprecedented and unparalleled. Given the developer's excellent pedigree, when Rockstar released Red Dead Redemption 2 in 2018, I think we all expected that it would be good, but I don't think anyone really understood how much of a masterpiece this game would end up being, both as a technical achievement and more importantly as an absolute masterclass in storytelling and character development. Now there have been a few games that were able to hit the same emotional heights that Red Dead was able to impose on me, but none of them were able to accomplish it with anywhere near the same scope or depth. This game's narrative is far-reaching, yet intimate. It's subtle, yet powerful, and ultimately it is simultaneously both triumphant and utterly devastating. It doesn't hurt that Arthur Morgan is one of the most well-written fictional characters that I've encountered in any medium. He's a man whose past is filled with violence and regrets, but whose heart has just enough room to try to turn things around in the face of a changing world and his own mortality. And yes, this concept has been visited plenty of times before, but this game's rendition really makes you feel it. Somewhat due to the sheer amount of time you get to spend in Arthur's shoes, but largely in part to the truly convincing world. The interpersonal relationships between the characters were nuanced and they felt genuine, more so than any game I've ever played before or since. You really felt like these characters truly cohabitated in this world and were interacting with it and each other whether you, the player, were around to see it or not. I think this is the secret sauce that took Red Dead from a great game to a monumental achievement. Now we've played plenty of good open world games where the story is clearly centered on the protagonist and only seems to exist to serve their story. <clears throat> Skyrim. <laughs> and while that is all fine and good, Red Dead Redemption 2 really makes you feel like the world exists with or without you, and you're just there for a fleeting moment to observe it before it moves on without you. Which is a major focus of the story, and I think it really drives the point home. Arthur is the main point of view from which we experience the story, but he is not the focus of the world, or even necessarily the microcosm that is the Vanderlint gang. In fact, despite his prominence, this is not the, even the story of Arthur Morgan. It is the story about the fallacy of Manifest Destiny, and how the wild and beautiful American frontier was bastardized and destroyed by moral bankruptcy and corporate greed disguised as progress. As Arthur, we stand witness to the final days of a dying natural world and watch as a few wealthy men destroy both the beauty of nature and the lives of their fellow men in blind subservience to the almighty dollar. Shit. Ultimately Woo. giving rise to the looming corporate autocracy that we find ourselves in the shadow of, even now, a century later. It far surpassed the status quo spaghetti western story about revenge and instead touches on a deeply disturbing and pervasive theme that resonates strongly in our modern world, despite just being a story about cowboys and train robbers on the surface. This brave new approach paid off in dividends and helped create one of the most convincing game worlds I've ever inhabited. No amount of graphical fidelity, haptic feedback, or VR immersion will ever draw me into a world so fully as the way they did with their approach to the narrative in this game. Right now, the news is full of headlines about fear that AI will replace writers, but I can tell you there is no substitute for a deft human touch in a nuanced narrative, and it can literally make or break the experience as we've plainly seen here. If ever there were a game to illustrate the point that video games are in fact a formidable art form that can elicit strong emotion and provoke thought, Red Dead Redemption 2 is a shining example of what the medium can achieve. It was ahead of its time, and it remains largely unchallenged still, even half a decade later. Now it might be a while before we see anything that can top this experience, but as Arthur finally came to see in his final moments, the world is ever-changing, but the future is full of opportunity if we're able to make room for something good. I apologize for my long review. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, amen, and round of applause. Um, yes, uh, su support your WGA writers uh, and the strikers. Uh, they need to get what they deserve. 
Otherwise, you're going to get shitty TV forever. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And with that, we want to say thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to share it with folks you think might enjoy it as well. If you want to get in touch, drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds at gmail.com or contact us on Twitter at pixelplaypod. And for us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Kalecki. And I'm Clint Jones. Take care and keep on moseying. Take me to the station Put me on a train I've got no expectation To pass through here again The story of Arthur was so compelling, but ultimately I really think they were telling the story about how they, they weren't telling the story about how he died. They were telling the story about how America died. Like that was it. They're telling the story about like the death of the frontier and the hegemony of the United States government in that region, I suppose. But you know, all the things that come along with it, capitalism and basically the rule of money overall, as you said, the almighty dollar. Well, they're just switching hands of slavery, right? So before they had slaves, that was outlawed, and now they need to find a way to new new way to have slaves, and that's basically just make us slaves to their bullshit until we fucking die because you have to have you can't just go out and get food and water and shelter for your family. You have to serve a corporation until you fucking die because if you don't, there's no getting around that. Like if you really take a moment to think about it, like that's it. And if you look at the moment in time that this game was portraying, that was the last moment where a free man could be free and literally just bring food home to his family. And that was the end of it. <clears throat> I certainly don't wish to harken back to a time where I needed to go out and hunt a deer to feed my family. Clint, there's a really great sports illustrated article from, I think the sixties about the last mountain man, uh, some guy who lived out in like some future national park space who went into like this local town, which had a summer population of six, to buy gunpowder, tea, and books, um, and everything <laughs> else during the year he'd fend for himself. It's a really great article. I'm going to look that up for you. My family's from the Appalachian Mountains in West Virginia. I feel this calling to me. I'm like, this could have, I don't know. Like, this one hit hard, but in a, I guess in a different way than you guys felt it. I, de- I like Arthur was cool, but he was like just like the window through which I saw the rest of the story. Yeah, it's it's really interesting how Josh you you butted up against the idea that like the game was trying to allow you to make a, a decision on what your Arthur was, and that that like sort of derailed you for a little bit because, um, I don't think that necessarily that was required of this story was to let you like try and go down that path because they do have a very specific way they they know it's going to work out. Like there's a strong authorial intent on this story. And I don't know that it's served by chapter two's meandering, but at the same time, I think all of chapter two contextualizes it perfectly. So I come down on the pro chapter two side, whereas you come down on the anti chapter two side, but I feel like we feel the same things about it. Me too. And I think it adds to the helplessness. Like it doesn't matter if you're a good Arthur or bad Arthur, the world will do what it's going to do with or without you. Cause you don't fucking matter. Like the, the wheels of history are in motion, and you are going to get run over by them if you don't get out of the way. You took the one bag job and got tuberculosis. That's going to happen either way, whether you're good Arthur Again, or bad Arthur. 
you don't know that till later on, so it's not interesting when it happens. Only, again, in retrospect. Like, chapter two, there was some good stuff going on, good stuff going on with the story, but, like, I didn't know what story the game was trying to tell me. Is that not a good thing? Like, where you're kind of left thinking about it? Like, to, to my mind, like, a game that isn't, like, showing all of its cards on Front Street like that, I long for that. I want something that, like, I can't immediately clock as, like, oh, this is the hero's journey. Oh, this is, like, isekai. Oh, oh, this is, you know, name your bullshit story structure here. I think it's nice when a game, especially an open world one, allows you to just sort of exist in a place and then the context collapses upon it later. The counterpoint I will mention is that Rockstar is, again, a very... um uh, cinema-focused kind of experience they're trying to deliver. Totally. And that until they decide where the story wants to go, everything before that feels like tutorial, which is how I see chapter two. What do you want? Like Mass Effect, where you make a bunch of decisions and then none of it fucking matters in the end because you literally, like no one can create an experience where all those, like bespoke meaning moments really mean anything at the end like there, there's no there's no calculating for all that i i have <clears throat> i have a counterpoint to both of you in which i feel like the ending to red dead redemption 2 does its best to contextualize all of the stuff that happens in those moments within chapter two and three yes. and yeah like it is vague enough in which you can write your own internal monologue for arthur that includes all of the bullshit you did in chapters two and three to make him into the protagonist that eventually dies in chapter six. And I think that is what is affecting us so much when we see him, you know, mourn for his horse and eventually die on a mountainside. You know, we see this guy's complete story and it includes all the silly shit that we did in chapter two, as well as all of the very meaningful stuff we did in chapters four through six, excluding I Gwarma. am 100% <laughs> on board with this game, including Guarma from end of chapter three onwards but it's that chapter i love chapter one chapter two and three most of them were not my cup of tea um like i in chapter two i loved the fishing mission where you are taking jack off in the pinkertons and the two pinkerton agents are coming there and one of them is agent ross there's agent Mil milton who is the talking person and agent ross who's actually the uh main antagonist of the first game even tells jack like enjoy your time fishing when jack will eventually shoot him dead while ross while is fishing. fishing oh my god i didn't even clock that that's fucking incredible oh fantastic fantastic stuff i didn't even realize this till i was researching the game afterwards so that mission was really good but it let me know kind of what the stakes were in the game uh before that mission i didn't even know i'm just wandering around i'm just fixing what my I, what my uh companions are doing in the gang where they mess up which they always do because they're not <laughs> arthur uh, but it's like i didn't know what story the game was trying to tell and i couldn't fit in whether i should be robbing everyone i see or helping out a stranger because i didn't know like, is this the kind of game where the game wants me to be helping strangers or not? 
Yeah, I don't think I ever had the crisis of conscience because I was so enamored by the open world in chapter two that I was just soaking it in. And then I was like drip and instead of all at once, I was like drip feeding my time with like the little story missions with each person in the camp. So I was just like doing like the get to know you, hang out, have fun. I never felt the pressure to understand who I was because, again, Arthur would get into some shit again. I got fucking wasted with Lenny with Bill. I got into a fight and, you know, beat up half the town like I did some fucked up shit. I, I robbed a bank. Like that's all part of the story is you mess around with people. Like I'm clearly not a great guy, but in the moments, in the quiet moments, like in between where you're talking to the gang about like the things you did and why you did them. Like you get the understanding that he's not a terrible person. He's just, he's playing with the hand he was dealt and he doesn't know what else to do. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I think the interesting thing about chapter two is it does allow you to have some of those missions where Arthur is more of a cut and dry douche. Like he is just an enforcer for a gang that is involved in usury and shakedowns and, you know, the less savory side of the Robin Hood uh, narrative. And that changes later. Like uh, I could be wrong, but my understanding is that you cease to have to take on the uh, Leopold Strauss, you know, loan shark missions as the game goes on. You have to do it in chapter two. You do not have to do it, as I understand, in some of the later chapters, which I think... I flat out refused. Yeah, you can refuse it. You can even continue to do it. And I think if you continue all the way, you kick Strauss out of the camp. Hmm. Interesting. So your continuing to do it does lead you to ousting him? I think so. I think so. At least in one path. Mine did. Yeah, I definitely kicked him out of the camp. I basically said, get the fuck out of here. Like, I mean, this has been a long time, but I remember like, again, this is when people are slowly slinking off anyway. But yeah, I basically kicked him. He wanted to stay and we kicked him out. Basically said like, this is not what this gang is about. Like, this is cancer. I think that is probably true for the earlier chapter versions of the Vanderlyn gang, but not the later ones. (laughs) Um, And I think that that alone that alone is an important thing to point out. Right. Like this is a gang who's like mode of operation changes over time. What I think I would say is that the story is about the disintegration of the Dutch Vanderlyn gang. And the chapter two does not meaningfully advance any of this. You're right that it doesn't advance it. You're basically existing in chapter two in a period of stasis where the gang is operating as it's meant to operate. And then as soon as you advance from that point on, shit hits the fan. And that's meant to be held in contrast with everything that comes after it. I would argue that chapter one fulfills all the goals of setting this table. I I will say that in my playthroughs, again, I don't think I ever get much past chapter two, not because I don't enjoy it, but because that's the time where I have the most fun. Yeah, I agree. Like chapter two is like, that's like weirdly chapter two is endgame. If if you were writing the Dutch Vanderlyn gang story, the, the prequel to Red Dead Redemption 2 would end at Horseshoe Overlook. You know? <laughs> I'm just going to keep disagree. going fishing and it will all be fine. <laughs> One thing I loved in this game was the Mary Linton side quests. Um, the love flame of Arthur Morgan. And the the earlier ones, you know, the earlier missions, I felt they were okay. Like, they were... They did good in terms of characterization and whatnot, but I loved how it ended up when you were in Sandini and you rescued her heirloom brooch 
that her drunk father sold off for gambling debt. And you go see the show at the vaudeville afterwards. Um, but there's a moment where Mary is like, hey, let's run away together. Let's forget all of this. You know, you have your past. That's fine. Let's just leave all this behind. And Arthur comes back with like, well, that sounds great, but I just need to do one more score first. And I've got to just take care of these few guys and, you know, we do one more thing and then we'll be free and then we'll be good. And it's like this reflection of Dutch's philosophy. Uh, it infected Arthur at that point. It's I like everything it. he ever said. Everything was one last. I mean, obviously, this is rote at this point. Every bit of media we ever see about bank robbers or this or that, it's always one last score. But that's that was what he was always preaching. Like, this mm-hmm. is the last one and we can do this. And then it would fall apart and he could convince him again, like, yeah, this is the last one. And then we're done. You're, you're absolutely right. And it's like anyone who is locked into a cycle of <clears throat> harmful behavior, you know, you, one last cigarette, one last drink, one last uh, round of the tables. You <laughs> Bank know, <one> robbery. <laughs> <laughs> I do really like the Mary and Arthur story because it specifically is never allowed to let play out because, you know, as you said, Josh, Arthur may be using that as a crutch to not allow her to get too attached because he knows he's dying but it's telling that he wouldn't just allow himself to tell her that he was dying this game also has quite a bit of the um stamina and this and that like i don't want to call it like the san andreas stats but it kind of does he's clearly in decline well let's talk about the course real quick you know this is a core mechanic of the game there's definitely no reason this shouldn't have made it into the uh, core cast, but here we are in the post world talking about one of the key mechanics of the game. You have cores, three of them uh, dead eye, stamina, health. And uh, once you get the TB diagnosis, or once you start to realize the effects of it before you even get the diagnosis, as you mentioned, Clint, they go down. Like your health is decreasing. They are inverting the power curve throughout this game. Arthur is getting weaker as the game goes on. You can see it, you can hear it. Yes, you see it in the cores. You also see it in his demeanor. You see it in his animations. Like, Dude looks haggard as fuck, and you just don't know if, like, for a moment you're like, is it just because this man has been on the run for too long? Like, yes, things keep going south. Things, they they never get a moment. And, and yet Dutch still looks healthy as a horse. <laughs> so funny thing for me was the TB diagnosis caught me off guard completely. Yeah. Um, and it was a weird thing. Like, I have this nursing background. I'm like, oh, coffee and blood. That only happens in tuberculosis. And then I'm like, oh, well, turns out that's what you got. Um, so but I how many was... other games have you ever played where that's been the thing? Like, oh, you've contracted, I mean, other than Oregon Trail. We need, to play, we need to play Far Cry 2. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. That's uh, malaria, right? Yeah. That's interesting that it was a blindside for you, Josh, especially as a person who should nominally be able to identify diseases. <laughs> I mean, as a computer programmer, I have seen that profession being abused for dramatic effect <laughs> many times. If someone's yes. coughing blood and they're like, oh, I have influenza, I'd be like, yeah, whatever, sure. Let's keep really let's severe move on. influenza, but let's go. Yeah. So one thing I read, I did really like about the epilogue um, was the fact that at the end, the Pinkerton agents, which is including Agent Ross, who we talked about a little bit before, they're only tracking you down because you went after Micah. So the entire events of Red Dead were set off in motion by John's choice 
to do the final revenge mission. Red Dead Revenge may have been the better ending for the John Marston portion of this game. I mean, we all knew it was going to end badly, but I thought it was a nice touch how they brought it back from the nice proposal out on the lake in the rowboat to what happened to John happened to him because he's John, because he has to be the hero. And because he feels this sense of obligation to a life that he is trying to leave behind. At the same time, we can all agree, John killing Micah. Good thing. All good. good. Um, no one's uh, no one's upset about that. We're all just upset. I mean, there's so many chances to leave him behind. We should have left him in Strawberry to rot in the jail. I, I just don't... And even then, as a sense of, like, again, foreshadowing, Arthur was like, can't we just fucking leave him there? Yeah, the, the, gang, like, <laughs> the gang's Ouroboros of terrible decision-making kind of rears its ugly head continuously in this game. Like, Arthur saves Micah. Bad decision. Micah betrays the gang. Oh, snake eating its own tail. John, after being redeemed by Arthur, going after Micah. Once again, snake, snake eating its own tail. Like, this is a situation where continued revenge and continued bad blood just permeates the lives of these people forever until they, you know, die. Stand and shake.